And I'd like to read to us just the first four verses as we uh, get uh, to, as we begin this series in uh, the letter that James wrote. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the, dwell, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. That you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, it's been several weeks since I had planned to begin uh, the letter of James uh, following uh, our series in the book of Jonah. Uh, My plan was to do uh, a handful of sermons in the Psalms leading up to Easter, after which we would begin uh, this letter to James. But since we were in exile, although in our homes we were in exile from corporate worship, I thought it best just to continue in the Psalms and to delay our series in the book of James until we were able to get at least into a church building and we could really focus upon uh, God's word. But, of course, we make plans, but God has different plans. And as I was considering the book of James, and just, you know, as as the way in which things panned out, I was reminded of what James says later in his book. In chapter 4, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Indeed, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Well, even though this is probably one of the first New Testament letters uh, ever written, probably written about around A.D. 44, we see that it applies to our day. Indeed, James could have written these, these words just in the last couple months. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. And so it is my hope and prayer that we will benefit greatly as we consider uh, this book, this letter that James wrote. And so as we begin looking at this letter, getting back to uh, chapter one, we notice that this letter begins in the same way that all letters in the ancient world began. For indeed, authors in the ancient world began their letter the way we end them, with their name. James, James, literally in the Greek, it's Jacob. I have no idea why English translators decided to translate what is clearly the name Jacob, a good Jewish name, into the English name James. Maybe it had something to do with the English. But the name has stuck, so we'll stick with James. He names himself, just simply calling himself by his name, James. This suggests that he was well-known, at least to his readers. He doesn't have to explain which James he is. He's assuming that his audience knows which James 
is writing this letter. And so we might rightly ask at this point, well, who wrote this letter? Who is this man who calls himself James? There are at least four men mentioned in the New Testament who go by the name of James, three of whom are in a single verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 13 reads, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. You'll notice there are three men they mention there that bear the name James, the last of whom I think we can dismiss quite easily as not being the author of this letter. I think it is highly unlikely that the father of uh, the other Judas among Jesus' disciples was the one who penned this letter. He's not known anywhere else uh, in the New Testament. It is highly unlikely that he is the author of the letter. The same goes for James, the brother of John, the first James that is mentioned in that verse. And the reason why it is unlikely that James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, wrote this letter is because he died so early in church history. We know he died at about AD 40. It was Herod who had him arrested and beheaded him. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. And so uh, due to the fact that he was martyred, he was the first of the 12 to be martyred, by the way, um, due to the fact that he was martyred so early in the development of the, of the New Testament writings, it is highly unlikely that he is the author of this letter. And so that leaves for us James, the son of Alphaeus, who's probably also James the Younger or James the Less for you King James versions, that's all, who's also mentioned in, in Mark 15. And although he, but although he was one of the 12, he did not seem to be very prominent in the early church. And so it seems as if, if he was the author to this letter, which, by the way, Calvin thinks James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, uh, wrote this letter. So it's okay to think that, but it's unlikely because he was less prominent. This leaves for us the only other James that is mentioned in the New Testament, and that is James, the brother of the Lord, whom Paul, in the book of Galatians, calls a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. He is the one to whom Christ appeared after his resurrection, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And since we know that James was a prominent leader, a a pastor in the church of Jerusalem, we see him in action in Acts chapter 15, after Paul and Barnabas speak at at that church synod, uh, Peter goes up to speak. We see James giving the final speech as they draw the meeting to a conclusion. And it's interesting, even as we compare the language of the letter that the church adopted in Acts chapter 15 with the letter we have before us here, we see a lot of similarity and even verbal overlap. And so it suggests to us that it's the same, one and the same James. James, the brother, the half-brother of the Lord, uh, and uh, the pillar in the church of Jerusalem being the author to this letter. And if indeed that is the case, it's fascinating to consider the fact that more than any other New Testament letter, the letter of James embodies the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see so much similarity to what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry when he was here on earth 
and what we find here in the letter of James. You can uh, uh, you could compare, for example, the Sermon on the Mount with this letter, and you find so much similarity. I think we'll be seeing that in the weeks to come. And so it suggests for us that that perhaps the author to this letter didn't just have a, a copy of the Gospel of Matthew before him, the, a, a copy of the Sermon on the Mount as he's writing this letter. No, perhaps it's not. it wasn't on the page before him, but perhaps it was in his heart. It suggests to us that this half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ may have heard his older brother teaching these things over and over again. But what's fascinating is that we know from John chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him before the resurrection. It wasn't until Christ appeared to James and proved that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah that his younger half-brother finally believed in him. And so although he had heard it with his ears before, it wasn't until it was in his heart that he sat down and wrote this letter. And so one might ask, though, well, if this is James, the brother of the Lord, then why doesn't he mention it? You'd think he'd get a lot more uh, street cred if you're able to say, well, I'm Jesus's half-brother. You better listen to me. Well, that's because clearly, as we see elsewhere in the Bible, blood relations doesn't matter. Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is my brother or sister or my mother. It doesn't matter if he was related to Christ by blood. What matters is how his spiritual relationship was with the Lord. So that's why James does not call himself Jesus's brother, but rather his servant. That's how he identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word servant could just as easily translated slave, uh, connoting the idea that he did what God told him to do. He did the Lord's bidding. When God said jump, James said, how high? But this idea of the servant of God is, is, a, is a title that was used of Old Testament saints. You may think of Moses or David. Those men were, were called servants of God because they did what the Lord commanded them to. They were faithful in their duties. But what's fascinating is that James includes his older brother as the one whom he serves. This is the only other place in the New Testament where we find this language exactly this way. He's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, so, it's clear in the Greek that, it, that he's the servant of both of them in the same way, including, uh, so, so the fact that he says, that he serves this man, Jesus Christ, in the same way and in the same capacity as he serves God is truly astounding, especially for a first century Jew who was taught his entire life that there is only one God and him alone you shall serve. And so for him to include his half-brother, Jesus, as the one he serves in the same way and in the same capacity that he serves God suggests that he's more than just his half-brother. Indeed, he is divine. Since no man can serve two masters, he's suggesting that the Lord and his anointed are one. Notice here the two titles he attaches to his brother's name. He calls him Lord, first and foremost. 
suggesting that he is the master, he's the ruler, he's the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been committed, but also that he is divine. This is clearly a divine title for Jesus Christ. But he also calls him Christ, which means the anointed one, the one who has been set apart, the one who will be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king who will accomplish the salvation of his people. This is who James serves. This is the, the, the one, the Lord of glory to whom he is fully committed, to whom he is a lifelong bondservant. Well, so far, we have considered the author of the letter. Now, let us transition to the audience. He addresses the letter to the, tr- to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, when you go back in your Old Testament and you read about the 12 tribes of Israel, clearly it's referring to the literal descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, the the patriarchs. But after the northern tribes were destroyed in the 8th century by the Assyrians, and after the southern tribe of Judah was destroyed by, by the Babylonians in the 6th century, The 12 tribes of Israel as such, in a literal sense, ceased to exist. By the first century, it was very rare for a Jew to know what tribe he came from. Only people like the Apostle Paul would know that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. It was was very rare for them to be able to trace their ancestry all the way back to the tribes. They knew that they were Jews, but precisely what tribe and what, what capacity They didn't know. And so the 12 tribes as such, in a literal sense, ceased to exist by the first century. But even before that, the Old Testament prophets foretold of the day in which the Lord would restore his people. And part of that restoration would mean a a reunion of the northern tribes and the southern tribes. They would be the house of Israel and the house of Judah would be brought back together as one. One of the prophets is a, a way of, uh, as, a, as a word picture, as an illustration, he took up two sticks and he put them together like they're one stick. And God says, that's what I'm going to do with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I'm going to restore them and reunite them. And so there was a hope, a looking forward to the day in which God would reunite and, and, and resurrect, bring back the 12 tribes. And so this language is picked up by New Testament authors. They speak of the 12 tribes of Israel as the people of God who are restored in the last days. I think that's Paul's usage when he says, when he speaks of the Israel of God at the end of the book of Galatians. And so clearly that's James' use. Clearly James is thinking of the people of God as they have now in the last days been, been reunited and brought back together. But we might ask at this point, does this refer, in James' mind, does this refer exclusively to ethnic Jews, or does it include Gentiles also? I think the answer to that is yes and no. No in the sense that since this is one of the earliest New Testament epistles, written probably around AD 44, as I said, and due to the fact that James's audience is predominantly, if not exclusively, Jewish. You see, the church in the early days 
still was growing in its appreciation for what the true Israel of God actually meant. We see this, I think, most clearly in the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins with the disciples after the, uh, sorry, the resurrection of Christ, just before his ascension. They ask Jesus a question in Acts chapter 1. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here again, they're thinking in the terms of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. People of God being brought back and, and restored to all of its former glory. Will you do it now? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, that's none of your business. Now, why did Jesus answer their question in such a way? Why did, they asked a yes or no question. Will you at this time restore? Yes or no, Jesus? And he says, it's none of your business. I think the reason why Jesus answered the question that way is because his ultimate answer was, yes, I am going to restore the kingdom to Israel, but not in the way that you're thinking. They were thinking about the ethnic Jews being brought back to a, 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 a geopolitical earthly kingdom. And Jesus was thinking of something much bigger than that. And in particular, when he was thinking, when Jesus thought about restoring the kingdom to Israel, he wasn't thinking just about ethnic Jews but he also was going to include the Gentiles into the one people of God. And that's really what the whole rest of the book of Acts develops as the church struggles and wrestles with this idea, who's part of Israel? Is it those who have been circumcised, who are physical sons of Abraham, or those who have faith, like Abraham, the father of faith? Well, clearly it's the latter, but the church needs to grow in that idea. And here James, as he's writing, He's writing probably to a predominantly, if not exclusively, Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish audience. And therefore, uh, he's growing in his understanding of what the 12 tribes means. But he goes on to explain the 12 tribes as those in the dispersion. Literally in the Greek, it is the diaspora, which is a word that we use in, in today's language to refer to a people group who's away from their homeland or place of origin, right? They're the diaspora. And originally, that, that word dispersion referred to all the places where the Israelites had been scattered after the exile. But James could have another dispersion in mind, one in much more recent history. We read in Acts chapter 11 of a more recent dispersion of the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. We read, in Acts 11, verse 19, now those who were scattered, there's the same word, diaspora, just in verbal form, they were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so here we read in, in the book of Acts of another dispersion of the Jewish Christians who were all, at, all in one place in Jerusalem, and they're scattered to these places, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, and they're all being scattered as a result of persecution. And yet what is clear in the book of Acts and what I think is clear in James's mind here is that this dispersion was no accident, let alone a judgment sent by God, but rather it was a result of the fact that Christ summoned his people to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
He's literally sending his people there, but using persecution, using their, their dispersion to get the word out so that, the peop- so that people will hear the good news of the gospel. And so since our citizenship is in heaven, we are, as Peter said, sojourners and exiles. And so that's why, that's what I think James has in mind. That's what Peter clearly had in mind, as he uses very similar language to address his audience as elect exiles of the dispersion, of the diaspora. It's the same word here. And so to a group of believers who were likely both earthly and heavenly exiles away from their homeland, James addresses this letter. And as a good pastor, he reminds them how they should live their lives in this present evil age as the first fruits of the new creation, being not only hearers of the word, but doers also. And so that gets us into the first words that he has for them. As he reminds his listeners, his readers of the hard that the hardships that they faced in this life. And just think about that. As they've as they've been scattered as a result of persecution, as they're living in a foreign land, undoubtedly being oppressed as a result of the fact that they are sojourners and exiles, he reminds them of the fact that all the hardships they face in this life were not occasions to lament or for self-pity but for rejoicing. Count it all joy. Literally, or I think better translated, it is pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Now, James isn't saying that joy is the only emotion we ought to experience when we encounter trials. Clearly, we have other emotions, sadness. It's perfectly fine to be sad. It's perfectly fine to cry out to the Lord in times of distress. It's not the only emotion we experience, but joy should be unshakable for us as believers. That's because, boys and girls, joy is different than happiness. Disneyland's still closed. I think they said uh, July 19th is the day that they're going to open back up. There's going to be restrictions. You've got to wear face masks. It'll be a long line. Probably got to register. It's not going to be the happiest place on earth. I can guarantee you that. But it still makes you happy when you get to go to Disneyland until you see the long lines, right? Until something bad happens. Then your happiness is gone just like that. Happiness comes and goes. Joy stays the same. Joy doesn't change because joy is based in our uh, relationship with God, in our status as Christians. And that never changes. Joy is that, just that under, the, the underwriting emotion that we as Christians have, even as we're crying. So we could literally have tears of joy. We could be crying even as we are joyful. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul, who's writing from prison, mind you, to the Philippians who suffered much persecution. And you know what he says time and time again throughout the letter they wrote to the Philippians? Rejoice! Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice because of who you are in Christ Jesus. Well, same thing here with, the, with, with James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. You see, trials should not cause us to lament, let alone have self-pity. 
but rather we ought to glory in our suffering. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, not only have we been justified by faith, not only have we been granted access to the throne of grace, not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice, literally we glory in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, since nothing can separate us from the love of God, nothing, and since we are more than conquerors in and through the persecution and trials we face in this life, through the various trials he sends us, we can rejoice because the trials we experience are not a sign of God's disfavor or judgment, They're proof that he loves us as our Heavenly Father and that he is working in us. And so when something doesn't go your way, when you face trials in this life, you should literally think, oh good, God's working in me. He has more work to do and he's accomplishing that work. And so the New Testament message is not Endure pointless suffering now because you will be glorified later as some opiate for the masses. Just keep people happy. Let them know that something's better in heaven. No, the New Testament message is endure suffering in order to be glorified later. You see, God uses suffering in our life to accomplish his purposes. He takes even bad, evil things and turns them to our good so that we might be more and more like Christ. Well, you might ask at this point, well, what kind of suffering? What kind of trials does God use? Well, you notice James's language. He's not very specific. He actually keeps it pretty open. Trials of any kind, various trials. This might include persecution or poverty or sickness or loneliness or depression, or bereavement, or, fa- or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. God can and does use any and all trials for our good. He's able to do that. But it's important for us to be reminded of that. I think that's James's point here. That's why he's beginning the letter this way, by reminding his audience of what he knows they've already been told. Look there in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We know those things, but we need to be reminded again and again and again because it's so counterintuitive. It's so easy for us to just, as soon as we face trials, we immediately go to self-pity or to lamenting rather than to rejoicing. And so he's reminding us. These things are for our good. It's a test of your faith. Now notice, it's not a test to see if we have faith. It's a test for those who already have faith, but one designed to test how strong our faith is and ideally to make our faith stronger. That's Peter's, uh, that's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 when he speaks of the tested genuineness of our faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's like gold being refined in a fire. Boys and girls, if, I don't know if, how many of you have ever gone gold, gold mining, uh, but uh, when gold miners go into the cave and you know, they got their axe and they find some gold, it's not pure at that point. What they need to do is they need to chip it out, and then they throw that gold that has a bunch of other stuff in it, other types of rocks and minerals, and what they do is they throw that gold in a roaring hot fire. And as that, as, as that gold begins to melt, it begins to refine, and all the rest of the type of, of minerals and stuff that's attached to the gold begins to melt away. That's called the dross. And what you end up with at the end of the process is pure gold. Well, that doesn't sound pleasant if you're the gold. You go in an oven that's thousands of degrees. Well, that's what Peter says is happening to us. As we encounter trials, our faith is refined. Our faith is tested so that it is strengthened and made more pure. And that produces, James says, steadfastness. Uh, Perhaps a better translation is perseverance. The idea here is that uh, literally the, the Greek word is like this picture of being under a heavy load. You're carrying something really heavy, but it's not crushing you and you're not throwing it away. No, you're bearing that load like a muscle that needs to be worked in order for it to grow. Trials produce endurance in our lives, perseverance, steadfastness. This is related to another word that James will use later in the book, patience, literally long-suffering. You can put up with a lot of pain. But it's important to note that God does not send us trials just so we get endurance. It's not endurance for endurance sake. Steadfastness is not the final goal. But rather, we need to allow steadfastness to do its work in us. Look in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect. And so this is important to keep in mind. Trials do not automatically make us better Christians. Sometimes they can have the reverse effect. If we do not allow steadfastness to complete its work in us, if we do not rejoice when we encounter various trials, but rather lament and turn to self-pity and anger and resentment and bitterness, they can make us worse. And I've seen that so many times. When bad things happen to Christians, they get angry. Angry at the person who harmed them, but most importantly, angry against God. And they're bitter for the rest of their life, and they think, why would God ever let that happen to me? You see, they did not allow steadfastness to complete the work. That's why James says, let it do its work. Let it work in you. Let God sanctify you. So that we might be perfect. Now, some translators would say, well, the word here translated perfect should rather be translated mature. And and James isn't speaking about perfection. He's just talking about maturity as Christians. And that is uh, one of the the ways in which this word could be translated as mature. 
And they might also uh, reference, this is the same word, for example, that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And they say, Jesus is just talking about maturity there. He's not talking about perfection. Because none of us is perfect. I don't think that's the case. I think both, both Jesus and James, who use this word, qualify what they mean when they say perfect. Jesus says perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How perfect, how perfect is that? How mature is that? Absolutely. And James does the same thing here when he says, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Absolute perfection is the goal. That's what God is after in each and every one of our lives. That's why he sends us trials in order to purify and refine our faith so that when we come out on the other side, we're not mostly good. We're perfect. Now, how many of us here can say, well, I've arrived. God's done with me. Absolutely perfect. Lacking in nothing, complete. Well, obviously none. Except for our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James's older brother, whom now he is a servant of. And until he returns, he's working in us through these trials of various kinds. He's working in us an eternal weight of glory, conforming us more and more into his image so that we might be a first fruits of his new creation. And when we appear together with Christ in glory, Paul tells us we will be like a bride on her wedding day without wrinkle or spot or any such thing so that God will look at his handiwork and he'll say, perfect, absolutely perfect. That's our blessed hope. And so when we encounter trials, when things don't go our way, Think about the economy. Think about you know, having to wear a mask in and out of a building. Think about maybe some more serious things. War, social injustice, all the things that we're struggling with on a daily basis. Sickness, bereavement. Count it all joy, my brothers. God is using those things to make you more like Christ. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you indeed are the Lord of glory. You, in the fullness of time, will be, were pleased to be born of woman, to be born under the law, to suffer various forms of mistreatment and injustice to the point of death on the cross for us and for our salvation. Thank you that by your wounds we are healed and that you as the good shepherd and overseer of our souls have gathered us to yourself And we thank you and rejoice in the fact that you are able to use trials of various kinds for our good. Lord, we pray that you would grant to us endurance, patience, so that we might allow that to work in us. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.